This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. We come to you from uh, Midtown Manhattan, but I know we're heard around the country, around the world this hour, we're going to be joined by Pete Hegseth, but there's so much breaking news to go over, and I did want to get your calls in, so get on board first, 1-866-408-7669. So, uh, we know the President of the United States is going to be doing, guess what, today, meeting with the Prime Minister of Japan, okay, but then where does he got to go? Back to Delaware for the 61st time, where he can visit some classified documents. Not sure if they're still there, but they were. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I had a conversation with the governor of Texas about him, but with Greg Abbott, where he was explaining to me what George Soros does. And it's terrifying. It seems like he funds corrosion. It's like he wants these cities to fall apart. He, he wants crime to flourish. I can't argue with you, Joe Rogan, but you're late to the party. We've been talking about this for years. Rogan speaks. Maybe now people will pay attention. His focus, George Soros. Cities and political power of the pandemic. We will discuss. Number two. Well, I think we know a lot about uh, how a lot of these Russiagate stories came to be. People just lied. Uh, In this case, even when Twitter had more or less conclusive proof that there were no Russians involved. Yeah, there you go. Matt Taibbi is a flabbergasted. Twitter files number 14 focuses on Russian disinformation. And you can't blame the social media platform in this case. I'm not kidding. Facts showed they told the lawmakers there no, there's no Russian bot campaign, but it was ignored. Matt Taibbi summarizes. Number one. Classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, look, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week. People, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? What an embarrassment. Biden's time in the barrel is here as he gets a special prosecution from his haphazard way. Uh, special prosecutor for the haphazard way he handled classified intel. So many questions remain, and I get the sense there are so many documents that we have yet to find in connections to possibly foreign sources that might lead us that direction. Now, what do we know? We know this for sure. The special prosecutor is now Jack Smith for President Trump, and this guy Robert Hur is appointed by Garland to investigate President Biden's handling of classified documents. What an embarrassment. My sense is, and some concur, that I almost think that every president might have him. Jay Town, a Trump U.S. attorney, a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, said he would not be surprised if every president and vice president left office with, with some classified documents, which is fine. If you didn't have an FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, this would not be a worldwide event. 
But it is, and it happened. And keep in mind, we're not just talking about November 2nd going into a University of Pennsylvania rented or leased uh, office building that the Biden Center was at. Mysteriously, they go into the closet, locked, and lawyers pull out classified documents. We know about that. I've been over that since Monday. But you probably didn't know there'd be a second tranche, and there would be in his garage in his Corvette. Did you know there was a third one? They said they found at least one document in a third room. Some postulated that that might be a skiff, which is this highly secure environment that you build in most presidents' houses. He might have had one built because of all his years in the Senate and his sensitivity with his vice president. We don't know that. We don't know a lot. But the cover of the New York Post tells a lot. They show him pulling out of a garage with his, with his Corvette and in the back a whole bunch of documents sticking out of a box. Are those full of classified documents? We're not sure. Cut to. My lawyers reviewed other places where documents in my, uh, of, from my time as vice president were stored, and they finished the review last night. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas and file cabinets in my home and my, in my, my, my personal library. Okay. Pretty big deal which is made bigger by the outrage that he showed on 60 Minutes when he told Scott Pelley, how could everybody be so unresponsible and it would expose uh, ways and methods as well as some people that might be in some precarious situations overseas. Just a huge difference by the way everything is handled. That's the thing that stuck out with me. Number one, I don't think either one should take any documents. There's no reason for Trump to take it, but I went over that uh, three months ago and was discovered. Got it. We've, we, I established that. But then when they go in to ask for it, he gives up some, and they go, well, we'd like to see others. He goes, well, I want to hold on to some. So let me check it out. They check it out. He goes, well, be, while we evaluate this, at least lock it up. He goes, yeah, I'll lock it up. So then they go and subpoena it, and his lawyers push back and say, why are you trying to take all this stuff? I don't know why the sparring was happening. But next thing you know, is a massive raid where they go through every inch of his place, go through his desk, go through Melania's drawers and his son's room and all his drawers. So compare that to... Joe Biden's lawyers allowed to go through his personal belongings and then tell the Justice Department what they found. I mean, you can't have a starker difference between the two. I don't think. I think it's noteworthy between the two. Jim Trusty, the attorney for Trump, on the many questions that still remain. Cut eight. And I could probably add about 50 or 75 other questions about how DOJ has treated this situation and how radically different it is from their attempt to criminalize President Trump's situation, which was simply not a crime under the Presidential Records Act and the Constitution when it comes to his ability to declassify. So the differential treatment is etched in stone so far in this case. I don't know how special counsel can undo two months of silence, two months of investigative steps likely squandered, and and a complete difference in the use of resources by the big machine of DOJ Uh, for President Biden compared to President Trump. So where do we stand? I I would hope they would both just get investigated, get reprimanded, whatever the public thinks. Never again set up a system for future presidents, vice presidents, secretaries of states. I'm serious. We have give all this money to the federal government, to the National Archives. Then they just sit back. They should be on the aggress. They should be on their front foot with security officers going through these things because the historical record 
whether it goes to the Smithsonian or to the, their respective libraries, it's got to be organized. What else are the archives doing? Get off your butt. Get in there. Go in there. If no one's listening to you, bring security with you, and there's got to be a system. That's what I hope because as, uh, Trump has enough challenges. This was a self-inflicted wound. For Joe Biden, it's just inexcusable. And I still have a lot of questions, and we don't know where it's going to lead, what those documents contain and where they could lead in terms of an investigation is also key. More from Trusty, Cut 9. When DOJ has press conferences after a search warrant, after a raid in Mar-a-Lago, they threw out evidence that they thought or paperwork that they thought was helpful. Here you've got the silence uh, accompanying the midterm And again, still, we don't know all the facts. Maybe there'll be more facts tomorrow, more locations where they find documents. But it seems almost like an honor system treatment for President Biden. Just please have your people let us know what you did wrong and we'll take care of it. And that's just not the way justice should be working in this country. I'm just going to go over the timeline because I do want to talk about other things. But this is very important. 1-866-408-7669. So on November 4th. Uh, the archives is contacted by the Department of Justice prosecutor saying the office, uh, that office with classified markings were found at a Biden Center office, that they found classified documents at his office. The documents have been secured by the archives. That was November 4th, second they called. So November 9th, the FBI began to an assessment. November 14th, by the way, in between there, November 8th, you know what that was? The election. You know when this, all these documents were discovered? November 2nd, report of the archives November 4th. The attorney general knew about it right away the minute they were contacted, the Department of Justice. On November 14th, Garland assigned John Lausch to perform the initial investigation. But this is all still being led by Joe Biden's lawyers. Whereas you just heard from Jim Trustee, it's kind of the honor code. Really, what honor? I mean, really at this point, we're honor code? December 20th, Biden's personal counsel informed Lausch that additional documents were found at his private home. So here you think that Lau should be on his front foot going ahead through the garage, through the house, through his libraries, through his houses, through other offices himself. But no, he's still letting Biden's attorney get through. And as was brought up to me before earlier today by a lawyer, that you better hope that Biden's lawyers got security clearance because now they're looking at highly classified documents that they have no busy looking at. All this stuff could have been stopped. The bigger question I have, why did they decide to come forward with it now? Who is the one that told them in January about what happened in November? CBS gets the story. NBC gets the story about him having a second group of documents at a different location. Why is it that the the press is so exercised about this? I'm not saying that's orchestrated, but it's certainly noteworthy that it's not just Peter Ducey that has put his hands up or her hand up, uh, whether it's a Fox, and just asking really good questions and really giving uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre, who walked out to another press conference drastically underprepared. Listen to some of this emotion, cut six. I can't talk about this, right, because it is the Department of Justice is reviewing it. There is a review happening, Ed, right? You know this. We just heard from the Attorney General. There is a review. I am limited in what I can say to this. Could Richard Sauber perhaps come here? I think, you should, come I here? think you should reach out uh, to the White House counsel. We're reaching out on a constant basis. Okay, White- I have to go around. You've asked well, me about, be, you've asked me, Ed. Right, and so he was following up hard. Others were doing the same thing, CNN, seven. You're now saying that you didn't talk about the second set of documents discovered almost a month prior because a review was underway. 
I, like, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. No, like, the I review was underway the entire time. The only difference was that reporters had information on the first set of documents, and therefore you chose to exclude the second set of documents until reporters got information on the second set of documents. Well, let me unconfuse you uh, for a second, Phil. Look, we are trying to do this by the book. And she kept saying the same thing over and over again, like Rain Man. And they were terrible retorts. Uh, we take it seriously. You don't take it seriously. Obviously, you don't take it seriously. Obviously, the president doesn't take it seriously. They were in an office that he wasn't even going to, and they were in a garage, which he only sees once every two weeks, with an old car, a Corvette. I'll come back and I'll take your calls, or you can write me, briankillmead.com, uh, and then you click on comments. It'll come to my uh, local email. Uh, we have a lot to discuss. Pete Hex at the bottom of the hour. We have a bet, which there's some confusion on who won or lost. So I'm going to get to the bottom of that. And keep in mind, One Nation queued up, ready to go, Saturday, 8 o'clock, the show, Eastern Time, the show you just can't miss. It has the key to happiness, your happiness. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. We've seen Governor DeSantis do political stunts. Uh, that is how he how he perceives to fix uh, the, uh, this issue from Florida. Uh, and he is not dealing with the problem. He's actually creating a problem. And, uh, and so that's what I have to say to that. We've talked about Governor DeSantis and, the uh, again, what, the mockery that he's making of a process that the president is trying to fix. So this is how ill-prepared she is. This press secretary does not know the story. The story is you got Cubans and Haitians flooding into Florida's coast, coming into this Ortegas Island. I think that's the way you say it. It is a prison island. I did a feature on it. It's one of my first features for What Made America Great on Fox Nation. It was, that's where you put Dr. Mead that evidently worked on John Wilkes Booth's leg. He did. And he was in prison there supposedly for life. Uh, and then they were going to set up a prison island never to be invaded again after the Revolutionary War. Uh, and it ended up not being used for that. Next thing you know, it was used as a hospital. So this island in the middle of the Keys is now being flooded. You're talking about they have 10 state troopers on there. So he had to use the National Guard. He wasn't sensationalizing. How do I know that? Because the National Guard, the U.S. Coast Guard, asked the governor for help. The email requested Florida's help with the migrant surge. When asked about the latest comments from the Biden administration, DeSantis pointed out that he activated his National Guard because the U.S. Coast Guard asked him to. And she's saying that this governor is grandstanding. What an what a uh, uh, unprepared person she is. 
lazy, wanted the job, not capable of doing the job because she doesn't put the effort in the job. It happens every single day. It's not nerves. It's not an experience. It's not intellect. It is laziness. So the governor, hearing that he's been called out, is ready to act with facts. Cut 28. The Coast Guard stretched so thin, and that what the Coast Guard has told us is we are not going to get additional resources from the federal government. Like, this is what we have. So we're basically filling gaps that the federal government should be filling and would be filling um, if they wanted to do it. I would just tell the White House, uh, not only has the Coast Guard asked us to help, um, but we have no choice but to help because of your neglect and incompetence. So once again... If this is what they have to go at Governor Ron DeSantis, who looks like, I think he's going to run, all indications are you don't know for sure. I mean, just keep feeding him these, these scenarios and these stories where he can continue to show you what leadership is. You gave him this win. Gave it to him. Just like you say the governor of Texas is grandstanding by using the Texas National Guard to round up illegal immigrants. No, you broke the border. You won't finish the wall. He's got no shot of doing anything but to weaponize and, excuse me, to mobilize the National Guard. But again, he, the governor's grandstanding, not acting in coordination because you don't want to do anything. They want this argument. More from DeSantis, Cut 29. We were seeing, you know, the Coast Guard had brought in like 300 people uh, that they had onboarded and, and put them in the Florida Keys. Well, they, they didn't have the ability to take care of those folks. There's vessels left everywhere and people's property and all this. So we declared a state of emergency. We provided uh, Coast Guard the assistance that they've asked for. We are going to clear the vessels free of charge for those residents because it wasn't their, their fault. Maybe we'll send the bill to Biden. We'll see. Should. I would send it to him. And I would make sure they're starting to put more illegal immigrants into Jacksonville Airport, I understand. So start grabbing them and sending them back. And the people they're using me as pawns are the ones that are allowing them to come in and then allowing them to overrun border, uh, the border towns. And then you have the ungratefulness of the story in New York. We got 30,000 illegal immigrants in New York City. They go into these nice hotels, destroy the room, uh, ransack the lobby, have sex in the stairwells. Drink, we're all drunk, and they refuse to eat the food, so they dump it in the garbage. I mean, how many more signals do you get, Mr. President? They're abusing uh, your naive naivete. How's that? So uh, Tranche 14 has been dropped off. The Twitter files released. Matt Taibbi enacted again, mobilized to start disseminating, and now it's the Russiagate. So Matt Taibbi, who tells you flat out, he's always got a family of Democrats who leans left, but he knows how to report, obviously, one of the best. The Russiagate lies are overwhelming him. The fake tale of Russian bots. So what happened is Twitter found out that these so-called Russian bots that were skewing and fomenting polarization in America and pushing everyone towards voting for Donald Trump didn't exist. So they told people like Senator Blumenthal they didn't exist. They told other lawmakers like Dianne Feinstein it didn't exist and Adam Schiff that there's no Russian bot campaign. That to Devin Nunes, what he submitted with his classified memo, uh, talking about FISA breaching surveillance methods and practices, was real. And they went ahead with their false claims anyway. And behind the scenes, it's an exasperated Twitter management team that's saying these lawmakers aren't even listening to me. They're putting out false stories. Imagine how we feel knowing the truth 
and listening to them foment lies while claiming the exact opposite. More on this with Pete Hegseth. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, I think we know a lot about uh, how a lot of these Russiagate stories came to be. People just lied. Uh, In this case, even when Twitter had more or less conclusive proof that there were no Russians involved in the release, the memo hashtag, even when they informed media uh, and elected officials, even when they pleaded with members of the Senate not to go public because it would make them look, quote, foolish. Uh, They went ahead and did it anyway, uh, despite being informed of the truth that, of course, Twitter knew internally because they were looking at the raw data. So this is, I think, a template of how these stories came uh, came to be. You know, the politicians and the media just simply overrode what the facts were. You talk about Feinstein? You're talking about Schiff. You're talking about Blumenthal. Would get these facts. The Twitter would tell them we have no proof that there's any Russia doing anything in here or Russia bots being put there. And they went ahead and followed suit, publishing a letter that said, we find it reprehensible that Russian agents have so eagerly manipulated innocent Americans. That's Senator Blumenthal. After Twitter told him it's not true. They put out uh, Schiff and Feinstein put out a note that said Nunes memo distorts classified information. But note they didn't call it incorrect. Uh, This goes on and on. So he put a bunch of his statements of his conclusions on the 14th release of the of Twittergate with me right now is Pete Hegseth. Pete, I also think it's it's so good that he picked Matt Taibbi because he's not known. You know, it's not like you picked uh, Mark Levin to go through it. Mm -hmm. And people would say no matter even though Mark would be honest, they'd say, oh, it's just a conservative commentator. This guy is not. I think Elon Musk has been smart from the beginning in choosing who he's been giving this to because it does add objectivity. Uh, they're, they're just open-minded people willing to search for the actual facts. And in this particular case, uh, you enlightened me on it this morning on the show. Uh, this is something Twitter knew for sure, right? In other, in other uh, cases, Twitter is acting as a de facto censorship Absolutely. arm yep. based on information they may not have access to. They're, they're using what the government is browbeating them to, to, to turn the temperature up or down on their platform. In this case, Twitter's saying, no, 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 this is our platform. We know if there are bots or something's being driven by uh, artificially. That's not the case. If you advocate for this, you're misrepresenting the reality of Twitter. But this doesn't surprise you or me. They have a talking – Russia was the talking point no matter what when it came to the defense of their actions and the indictment of Donald Trump. Well, they couldn't prove anything, and that's what drove Bill, Bill Barr so – got him so motivated when he realized there was nothing there – And he was on the outside. When he got on the inside, he realized for sure there was nothing there. And get this. Get your head around this. The uh, the Russian gate lies. The fake tale of Russia, the fake, the the story started coming out that there's no there there. And they said it was the fake tale of Russian bots pushing the, the line forward that there was no there there. So when it started going back and forth on social media that there's no substance to this and they can't prove it, that was Russia using bots to infiltrate our social media outlets to manipulate the American public. So we think, so we would believe that that was indeed not the truth. I'm confused. I'll be, I mean, and, and 
if you and I are having to parse through which person is influencing Twitter and which part of the bots and the yeah. Russia is true, if you're an average consumer of news, you tune it out. Oh, yeah, we're doing forensics now. You One tune thing, it out. A crucial moment, they say, in a years-long furor, according to Taibbi, Democrats denounce a report about flaws in the Trump-Russia investigation, saying it was boosted by Russian bots and trolls. So if I say, hey, Pete, I heard from people that uh, X, Y, and Z that you're doing is not true. You'll say, well, that's just Russia. What do you mean? So everything I say that you don't like, you blame on Russia. You blame on Russia, but you don't actually dispute the factual basis of the claims. So it's all a deflect and distract. They're not answering whether it's true. They're saying Russia's pushing it. Right. Russian bots are pushing it. That's a separate issue. That's not true, but that's a separate issue from the actual question. Yes, Twitter officials were aghast, finding no evidence of Russian influence. Quote, we are feeding congressional trolls. He goes, we are feeding congressional trolls, not any significant activity connected to Russia, putting the cart before the horse, assuming that it's propaganda bots. These are Twitter officials talking to each other. And these are Twitter officials who are almost overwhelmingly Democrats. So they would have a reason. Hate Trump. Hate Trump. They would have a reason. But in this particular case, it's an indictment of their platform. They have a product. If it's able to be controlled by Russian bots, they have a problem on their hands. So they stood up, I think, in this particular instance for their product. Democrats didn't care. January 18, 2018, Republican Devin Nunes submitted a classified memo to the House Intel Committee detailing abuses by the FBI in obtaining Pfizer surveillance against Trump-connected figures, including the crucial role played by the infamous Steele dossier. The Nunes assertions would virtually all be verified in a report by the Justice Department. Nonetheless, the national media in January and early February of 2018 denounced the Nunes report in oddly identical language called it called it a joke. So they were able to put that out, call it a joke using Twitter. And if people had a counter narrative, it was because the Russians were behind it. And Diane Feinstein, who sadly looks like she has Alzheimer's, she's useless. I don't know if she was useless back in 2018. She should never have that job. They should have pulled her a long time ago. Feel bad about it, but you can't do your job, a U.S. Senate without it. She there with Schiff and Blumenthal just kept pounding out this story. We, we I for- mean, it just so, uh, uh, gets you so angry. We forget about how confusing and opaque that moment was because it was all about Russia, Russia, Russia. And then Devin Nunes and Cash Patel and a few others were willing to actually do the homework. Mark Levin was ahead of the curve on it. Now everything that was debunked as mis or disinformation came out to be true. It's all true. I can't, who did we have on the show this morning, though, that said, but I bet 50% of Americans, if you asked him right now. Devin Nunes. Devin Nunes. It was a clip we played. Would still say that Russia was behind this. See, it still had its impact. The truth right. never mattered. The narrative is what they tried to control, and it still worked. To and this here's day. how the country gets hurt: uh, it's hard enough dealing with Russia, rather than uh, it's, it makes it impossible when you make up stuff that they did. They do enough unsavory things, so we made up stuff and blame it on Russia. And then when you think about it, when the president has his press conference and and uh, goes and meets one on one with Vladimir Putin, and then they have their dual press conference after, and he comes out and he says. Yeah, I talked to him. He says he didn't meddle our election. I believe him. So they did meddle. They had some trolls, but they have trolls in every election. So would there be a way to couch that and do it diplomatically, like more Bob Gates and Barack Obama? But basically what Putin's trying to say is, I'm not doing everything they said I'm doing. I might have done some stuff, but I didn't do it. And he goes, I tend to believe him. 
in retrospect, judging by this Twitter exchange that Matt Taibbi exposed, he was pretty right. He was right. And so and tell me who the real Russian agents are in this story. If you're happy to, to build up a boogeyman and give credit to Vladimir Putin for things he's not doing, who's really advancing the agenda of Russia? It turns out it was the Democrats all along. Here is Devin Nunes, cut 23. Remember what happened here. In 2016, Donald Trump caught everybody by surprise by using social media successfully to win the election. After that point, Obama specifically went to Zuckerberg. They went to Twitter. So this was part of an ongoing process through 17 and 18. They all knew the Russia hoax was exactly that, a hoax. And their goal was not to just control the fake news, but to control the delivery of the fake news, which poisoned the American people. And I bet if you did a poll today, I bet you would still have half of America, maybe more. They would think that Trump and Republicans had something to do with Russia. And it's a shame. Because they've never apologized. They've never retracted. The media has never covered the true story. And if they did, it is buried. Right. We, we don't live in an actual, truthful, objective media environment. We never have. Mm-hmm. But we lived under the false pretense that, that there was some sort of an independent media. Then you add social media on top of it. We're supposed to be the ultimate independent media, right, in, in theory. That was the theory, right? Anybody can, anybody can publish. Anybody can put their opinions out there. It's, of course, devolved into exactly what the New York Times is, just so, an extension yeah, of Democrats. And, and I think that if we could look this up, Eric, you know Matt Taibbi from two weeks ago, when he, what he told Tucker, when he talked about describing himself uh, going in? Yeah. Um, he, he'll know. Um, but so he describes himself going in, but he can't believe that people on the left, which he's a member of, aren't interested in this story. He says he's stunned. That why, they're not interested in this story. Why are they so then therefore, not to transition, but why are they then therefore so interested in the classified document story? I mean, I agree that the classified document story is an important one, but they've seemed to jump on that one with chum in the water in a way that we saw with Karine Jean-Pierre yesterday that we've never seen with this administration. So why no interest in a manufactured story that one reporter could get to the bottom of and endless, seemingly on classified documents, which they should, which is a problem. But well, they've made it a bigger story than they usually do. Pete, you know, we're not seeing, the, the story came out on CBS. I don't know if you had alerted on your phone, but it was on CBS that first came to me on my phone. It said documents found, classified documents found in a closet of uh, President Biden's office when he was yeah, vice president. I, yep. CBS broke it. Now, is your opinion that they actually broke it, they had a source, they broke the story, or do you think... And does that play into it that the administration called up a friendly reporter and said, I got a story for you. I'd like you to have it first. They wanted it out there. Or do you think this was great investigative journalism? No, I don't think it's great investigative journalism. I think that's that's the lowest possible. It's either handed to them by the administration at this time because it was going to come out at some point and they wanted it to be through controlled media like CBS controlled media or they were pushed and prompted to by someone else who had knowledge who doesn't want Joe Biden to run again in 2024. And they're getting it out right before his announcement. Right after the midterm elections, even though they knew about the classified documents before that, and as investigations into Hunter Biden will begin as Republicans take the gavel in the House, add that together, he's about to make his announcement. Now would be the time for an opponent to pounce on this kind of information. And then, you know, that's when, if CBS does it, then the rest of them pile on because... It has the imprimatur of being legitimate. All right. So listen, Pete's going to stick around. We have one more block. We also have a bet. 
Yes, we uh, do. We have a bet. And I bet that the House would name it Speaker by Friday. And Pete said, that's laughable, Brian. That'll never happen. Well, it happened. But the question is, when did it happen? Mm-hmm. Back in a moment. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. It was just one week ago today where we watched the Republicans brawl for five straight days, multiple rounds, over 100 years, uh, and it has not gone this deep to name a speaker. And I can't, well, should we relive the moment, Allison, uh, where we, Pete Hegseth and Brian Kilmeade, talked about predicting the future and when a speaker would be named. I don't think we should write off the possibility that we're here a week from now talking about the 34th ballot. All right. So are you taping the show, Allison? Uh, Because I'm going to say it's going to end today. You're saying it's ending today. I'm saying it's ending today. I'm saying there's no chance it ends today. I'm going to be back here on Friday next week because I'm I'm in for Steve on Friday next week as well. We shall play that clip, and I will bet you that they're still voting by Friday of next week. Lunch after the show. At After Del Frisco's. Radio, at Del Frisco's. Lunch at Del Frisco's. Loser pays. Almost all of it. Including, including of the it. tip. So we got a... Well, Pete, you take it from here. Tell me what, you, what your contention. Number one, my foresight was unbelievable. The question is, when exactly was the vote? Unbelievable foresight. Yes. You had some sort of inside information, as you often do, that I did not. Guttural. Guttural. Yeah, that, that type of inside information. I was... I, I watched the vote. I thought I just didn't think it was going to happen. And then I realized in the 14th ballot that, the you know, we're real close. So it's about nine o'clock at night now, right? Nine o'clock at night. And then I just started watching my clock, a watch because you have to get up in the morning. And you, somebody was texting me in real time. And Brian kill me. That was me saying uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so, yes, I stayed up to watch. Now, here's what I'll say. Technically speaking. Yes. The vote did not occur on Friday. Not the official grid, give me the gavel. The official give me the gavel did not happen until like one thirty in the morning on Saturday, which (laughs) makes your prediction incorrect. Right. However. Keep going. I grant you the victory. No, no, no. This is my argument. That's very kind of you. Here's my argument. I looked at my watch. I'm saying, I cannot believe this. I know it's not not official yet, but I watched the president's president's presence and they go to vote again and it looks like they're going to line up. When Eli Crane left the Navy SEAL from Arizona Stopped voting no and voted present. It was it was done, and it was eleven fifty eight at the time. So that's the thing. I think this is going to end up uh, Dutch. I think we're going to go out to lunch and we're going to get separate checks and we're going to pay for. Or you know what? We could do this. I'll pay for your meal. You pay for mine, and I'll pay for my own drinks. Yeah, which is really where I get which killed. Is where you get killed. Yeah, right. I'll pay for seventy five percent of the bill. Seventy five. That's that's a fair because you were way off. I said, you said a, a week, week from today. Thirty. Can you imagine ballots. that? There would have been a hundred. There would have been like five thousand votes by now. Would have been amazing. It would have been, but uh, they they got it done. And your your foresight, your guttural instinct was correct. And I will happily take you to lunch. Winners as, and as losers from that process. Kevin McCarthy, no doubt. Uh, Freedom Caucus. I think. I also think uh, people that believe in an actual process in Washington D.C. I, I don't. I don't think the Republicans really lost anything. To be honest, 
I don't know. Do you? What do you think? This is what I think. I think I overreacted early because I could not get what the other side wanted besides not liking him. I said, what do you mean? The swamp. We had to get rid of Okay. The omnibus bill. He didn't vote for the omnibus bill. He didn't. So why was he good enough for the minority, not the majority? Well, we want to, you know, we want to, we want certain things. Well, what are they? Well, when I saw Chip Roy go on with Brett Baer on Thursday and say, this is what we need. We need 12 appropriations bills. Uh, we need the ability to recall you, abdicate the seat. Uh, in one, because that's where it used to be. I, I did not realize it used to be that way until 19, uh, up, uh, up from 1923 yeah. until the last cycle. So, okay, educated by that. And then I saw Chip Roy get everyone in line. It's like, we, we got what we wanted. And then when I see Gates and Boebert holding out, going on television, raising money, going on other channels, I said, man, that that put me over the top. Because then you're wasting my time. Then it's about you. It's not about the country, which is the wrong reason to get into public service. You're not supposed to do that to get rich and be famous. It's supposed to be service. And um, and McCarthy, want, then they said, well, McCarthy wants it too much. Really? In life, shouldn't you want something? I mean, can't you try to achieve what you want? I mean, would you have to pretend like you're indifferent? So, and to me, I look at it a few days later, they, they seem to have gone through group therapy because a lot of them got to know each other for the, maybe for the first time, and they spent time on the other side of the aisle. And I think that's one of the reasons, I know you're totally, you don't believe in bipartisanship, you're not optimistic that they'll ever do it sincerely, but Mike Gallagher was on with us two weeks ago, and he said, I'm in charge of the China subcommittee, and I can't get one Democrat interested, it's so disappointing. And now, all but about 80, but they had, he had 300 votes. 341 votes, and he has Democrats on that committee. And I'm saying, I wonder if that would have happened if they didn't walk over and say, yeah, this is a little crazy. This is my committee. I don't know. We're going to have a vote on this in a little while. Evidently, they were interested, and that's supposed to pulled it back at the last day. We can get together on China, it seems. There are very narrow places, tiny little narrow places, where Republicans and Democrats could work together in actuality for the betterment of the country. China might be one of them. Two players emerge. Nancy Mace, three. Byron Donalds, Chip Roy. For sure Byron Donalds. Chip Roy. Chip Roy also. Right. Nancy Mace is different. She's moderate. And she went to bat for her cause. And uh, also, I love Gonzalez of Texas. Uh, the uh, military he didn't guy. vote against the rule. He right. Voted against the rules. He did yeah. actually vote against the rules. Yeah, he did. Because he says, I was a little upset by some of the things that were in there. I'll see you Pete said, Thanks. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country. Heard around the world. This hour we're going to be joined by Geraldo as well as Dr. Robert Waldinger. You probably don't know him offhand, but if you're one of the 42 million that downloaded his TED Talk, you do. He's the author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. So what if I told you the key to happiness is 35 minutes away? Would you listen? I hope so, because it lives up to the hype. Read a lot of the book, read the studies, uh, went over his TED Talk, and it is really fascinating what they concluded. And there's no opinion in it. It's almost it's based on as much fact as you can have in human behavior, in my humble opinion. So uh, before I get to Geraldo, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I had a conversation with the governor of Texas about him, but Mm -hmm. with Greg Abbott, where Mm -hmm. he was explaining to me what George Soros does. And it's terrifying. It seems like he funds corrosion. 
It's like he wants these cities to fall apart. He, he wants crime to flourish. Rogan speaks. Maybe now people will pay attention. His focus, George Soros, cities, uh, George Soros, cities and political power of the pandemic. We will discuss. Number two. Well, I think we know a lot about uh, how a lot of these Russiagate stories came to be. People just lied. Uh, in this case, even when Twitter had more or less conclusive proof that there were no Russians involved. Huh. Unbelievable. That was my Taibi. Twitter files number 14 focuses on Russian disinformation. And you actually can't blame Twitter on this one. You have to blame the lawmakers. I see it there in black and white. They were saying there's no Russian bot campaign. But Blumenthal, Feinstein, and Schiff just went ahead and said the untruths, the mistruths anyway. Number one. Classified material. Next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay? So is mine. Uh, Biden's time in the barrel is here as he gets a special prosecutor for his haphazard way he handled classified intelligence. So many questions remain, and I get the sense there are so many documents we have yet to find. With me right now is Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo, if you get in trouble... Would you like to have your lawyer decide what the prosecution should get a hold of and see? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, obviously, and it's uh, it's improper and maybe illegal to withhold critical information. I'm not exactly sure to which case you are referring. By. Well, with, what happens is when it was time to look for that classified material, we don't know what caused them to go to that office and go to the lock closet with his lawyers and pull it out. And Kevin McCarthy doesn't know and just about everybody I talked to don't know what caused him on November 2nd to pull out that classified material, where to find it and what it is. That might be key to this case. But isn't it interesting, after that's found, the lawyers still get a chance to go through the House, the Delaware Houses by themselves, and then report to the Department of Justice what they have. I mean, that's pretty unbelievable, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know all the facts. Uh, it, it seems... Uh improper or at least a, a very casual uh, uh, in, uh, in a situation like this. However, I, I, I really get, come back to uh, – I, I remember, you know, I've had lots of friends in D.C. over the years, as you have. Uh, it, it is pretty easy to stamp something top secret. It doesn't take an act of Congress. It is, as far as I know, there's no administrative review Whoever is the per, the point person, generally speaking, has this stamper, top secret, top secret, top secret, and it's lazy. And you don't. I, I want to know what these documents are. I, obviously, everybody everybody does to the extent that national security allows it. Uh, in terms of the machinations of uh, Biden's lawyers and whether well, they I can't enlighten you on one thing. Some up. of the material found in the office was the highest classification. Like what? Like what, Brian? Like I haven't what? seen it. Give me I'm one just, example. Well, there's I mean, Ukraine, but, there's Ukraine, China, like, and England. But what would it? What would it say? A, a, a box that's been there since he was the vice president. Uh, that, something about Ukraine. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It, to me, this whole thing. I, I come back to. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an know, example. Having... I'll give an example, and I always okay. give in that you're more experienced in almost everything we talk about, except soccer. I'm a better. I know more about soccer. Uh, Certainly, marriage. Well, I have one. You have more experience in them. Uh, That's what I'm saying. Right. So I'm not. I'm never going to say that I know more than you on anything at any time. I'll just give you my opinion from what I can glean from this. 
So I will say this. If there was a classification of in Ukraine, do you remember Ukraine, for example, had that Russian-picked leader? And they basically ousted him. He goes into Russia. And since that time, then Russia comes in and takes Crimea a few, a few months later. So they have their green revolution. What if we knew who the double agents were uh, uh, within Russia or within the Ukraine on the inside that helped the, uh, helped the Ukrainians get back their country uh, from Russian dominance? What if some of those names existed there? Now, I think that that's just some of the information that could be in there, just off the top of my head. Names and practices, uh, different, different players at different times. But I agree with you. When you came off, I know how uh, angry you were with Martha yesterday. You said, this, we have so many real problems. Why is this such a big deal? I would say one of the main reasons it's a big deal is because what we experienced for six months with Mar-a-Lago and the outrage that almost two-thirds of the media had and almost every Democratic politician had towards our former president. They want to put him in jail because of it. And then when this president goes on 60 Minutes and says, how can you be so irresponsible, you open yourself wide open. But isn't that the real soul of this situation, the outrage that people feel over the hypocrisy of Joe Biden going on 60 Minutes and condemning in the highest moral tone uh, possible, attainable on a, on a network show, uh, co- condemning uh, Trump's uh, uh, reckless behavior. But you, the, but you factor the in the raid. You factor in the raid. I, and you factor in the were, indictment. If it, were not, it were, if it were not for Biden's hypocrisy, uh, if it were not for the raid on Mar-a-Lago, which was outrageous, and uh, and I condemned yeah. it at the time, we wouldn't the the uh, our feeling, our response, our reaction to the documents in the garage and so forth would be far more muted. It really is. Uh, I, I believe it's uh, it's what goes around comes around. Uh, you know, karma. Uh, you 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 did the, you raided Trump. Now we're raiding Biden in a sense. Uh, I I think it's the kind of pettiness. I here's my prediction. Here's my prediction, and I appreciate your uh, your your deferring to my uh, my my the wisdom of age and uh, and experience. I doubt uh, if if it's accurate, but I I accept <laughs> the compliment. And you and you also uh, have great I, hair. But I have, I do have great hair, even despite my. Frequent interventions with Just for Men. No, I said great hair, not gray hair. <laughs> oh. <laughs> do you use Just for Men? Does that work? Just for Men, I do, of course. Yeah, look. Uh, Didn't you see how, how, how brunette I've seen lately? I did that. It <laughs> looks so real. <laughs> it <laughs> is real. My mustache is yellow. I have nothing to do with that. Oh. Uh, so, so anyway, I believe, here's my prediction. This will be uh, uh, like a like a, a flare, a, a Fourth of July firework. It'll explode on the national scene as it's doing now. Uh, Peter Ducey, our, our wonderful, able uh, uh, correspondent in the White House, will continue to humiliate and embarrass uh, the, uh, President Biden and those in his administration, the press secretary and others. And then uh, it'll gradually diminish. They'll look at it and they'll find and this will it'll peter out. And then things that really matter will will uh, come to the fore. This will be a much ado about nothing. That's my prediction. This is uh, you, this is the na 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 phase of the of, of the Mar-a-Lago uh, Biden Corvette garage uh, mini. But here's what would be good about it. Let's say there's no. Uh, I just want to. I want to find out. Trump's got to get through this uh, this legal stuff. And he's got to get through the Georgia situation. And he's got to get through this Mar-a-Lago situation. 
and then we're going to just see what we got. Then we'll find out how big the field is. We'll find out his little legitimate chances. And then we'll find out what what his message is to to go back and do it. Everyone, what no one's done except Grover Cleveland, go win again. So we'll find out. But we're going to get through this. Uh, do you believe that this neutralizes the cases that will prevent an indictment on one and not the other? Yes. I, in practical terms, even though there are two tough, uh, unimpeachable special prosecutors, very separate, uh, different people on these on these two cases, I believe that they will end up in the same place. You shouldn't have done this. Uh, we We don't appreciate this. You should have turned over these documents to the National Archives long ago, but we see no criminal intent. Uh, you know, so shame on you. This should not have happened. Now let's move on to some other uh, faux scandal. Uh, I, I want to get you on Matt Taibbi real quick, but before we go, just keep open mind that a lot of times you get to these documents and there's, they're not just arbitrary. There's a reason why they're there. And right now we know of 10, uh, maybe 12 that are uh, classified, some to the highest classification. Uh, we'll see if this grows. And I just don't think it's fair to have your own attorney that might not even have security clearance be the one to go through your garage. And how I, just had, a, I had a flood in my basement. Right. I had a flood in my basement yep. when I was in Florida. I had to come and take out tons of documents. And I'm looking at these documents that I've had over 52 years in the news business. And plus my legal stuff. You look at that, and I why, why did I save that for? What is that? What is, you know, you look at the, hold it up. Oh, I remember him. Oh, I remember. Oh, yeah. And, and then uh, you, you move on in life. And I, I think that this will be like my, this will be like Geraldo's soggy papers in both uh, in both these cases. Which but is, I think that they, it's there. I, I am still outraged by the raid on the president of the United States, the former president of the United right. States. They were oh, negotiating. My, yeah, they were negotiating. Yeah. I have no idea why he took him and why he kept him, but they were negotiating to get him out. It was stunning. So I want to real quick. So Matt Taibbi, who I think is so perfect to go through the Twitter files, who leans left and said it comes from a family of Democrats, said this last night about the latest tranche, the 14th tranche, which focuses on the Russia investigation. And let me just the headline. The headline is this. Don't blame Twitter on this in this case. Because Twitter was trying to tell these lawmakers there's no evidence of any Russian bots or influence in pushing against the pushing for or against Donald Trump. Listen to Taibbi. Cut 22. Well, I think we know a lot about uh, how a lot of these Russiagate stories came to be. People just lied uh, in this case. Even when Twitter had more or less conclusive proof that there were no Russians involved in the release the memo hashtag, even when they inform media uh, and elected officials, even when they pleaded with members of the Senate not to go public because it would make them look, quote, foolish, uh, they went ahead and did it anyway, uh, despite being informed of the truth that, of course, Twitter knew internally because they were looking at the raw data. So this is, I think, a template of how these stories came in, uh, came to be. The, you know, they, the politicians and the media just simply overrode what the facts were. So that's his conclusion. And it's Blumenthal, it's Feinstein, and it's Schiff. In particular, they said, listen, back off, this is not true. And they said it anyway. And these guys on the, and hardly right-wingers were aghast at what was going on. Despite my differences with the president over January 6th and the events leading up to the insurrection, I supported him right up 
through election day and, and, a, and a couple of weeks past. Why did I support him, aside from our, our long friendship? One of the reasons was my perception that he was being really uh, a very unfairly uh, persecuted by the mainstream media, that anything uh, that could smell of, uh, of uh, misfeasance or malfeasance seized on, exaggerated, expanded. Russia, Russia, Russia was the biggest fraud, uh, the biggest failing in, in, in recent media history. It, and, and that's one of the reasons I hate special prosecutors so much. What did Robert Mueller accomplish other than exacerbating the division in the country, slandering the sitting president, undermining him, making him crazy? One of the reasons he got so crazy was because of the unfair uh, prosecution and persecution. And what for? For nothing. Russia, Russia was a bunch of bull. And and the the way they used it until it was they wrung that baby out until there wasn't another drop left, and then uh, we'll go on and say never mind. And uh, you know that's uh, I, I think that th- these these two instances, the Mar-a-Lago and the Corvette Garage, will have a similar right. conclusion. It'll peter out, right. and uh, and we'll move on to to other things like getting well, tanks to the Ukrainians, which well, we should have done. Well, I months. mean this is this is a break for the president that, that Joe Biden was acting so irresponsibly. And this just came in and you might be able to help me here. I only have a minute left. Uh, Alvin Bragg's office, the DA in New York, the sentencing today, meaning the CFO, who's going to go to Rikers Island. Unbelievable. At 76 years old, the sentence today and sentence earlier this week closes this important chapter of our ongoing investigations of the former president and his businesses. We now move on to the next chapter. Do you know what that means? Is it what is the other chapter? I, all, all I know is that the previous chapter was – I mean, I have spent a lot of time in Rikers Island. Rikers Island is like a hotbed of the kind of uh, jailhouse rock uh, where, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's the incredible violence. Uh, there's a hierarchy. There's jail gangs. Uh, there's uh, the, the, uh, the, the twisted violence is, 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 is raw and primeval. And to send this old man to Rikers Island, Alvin Bragg should be so ashamed of himself. Absolutely. I started my legal career in that office, and I was so proud to work for Frank Hogan, the DA at the time, crime-busting DA at the time. What it, that office has now become with this politician in charge is shameful. And to send this old man there, it reminds me, it's even worse than when they put Bernie Carrick in solitary when they arrested him. They put him gotcha. there so he will kill himself. They put uh, this old man there so somebody will kill him. It is. It, I, I think that it is yeah. the kind of spite that really makes me spit, Brian. Geraldo, are you on the five tonight? I am. All right, we're going to watch. Now we have a reason to watch. Uh, Geraldo <laughs> Rivera, co-host of the five. Thanks so much, Geraldo. Okay, Brian, thank you. When we come back, we're closing in on the key to happiness. It's 12 minutes away. Your call's next. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. 
Here's the problem, problem I have with Generation Z. Now, I think they're good kids and they're waking up. But I think we made a mistake by saying, you could be anything you want. Right. You could be anything you want. We have to be more specific with this generation, Brian. Right. You could be anything you want. I want to be a horse. No, no, we didn't mean horse. <laughs> we meant too. policemen, firemen, you know, right. uh, maybe astronaut, may, probably not, but, but maybe. You know, and then, uh, but you can't be a wizard. It's just a movie. And that is uh, Rob Schneider. He's going to be on with us on Saturday on One Nation, 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock, right here on Fox News Channel. Uh, you know, he has been in uh, dozens of movies. You know, he does stand-up, does 90-minute strong Netflix specials. But and then along the way, over the last few years, he said, I can't pretend that I can go along with some of this anti-American, this anti-Trump, whatever he does is wrong. And he comes out, basically, I'm a conservative comic. And he lost a lot of his audience, a lot of his movie deals but he's still wildly popular. He's selling out uh, arenas everywhere because the audience appreciates him, even if network executives don't. So he rolls out his own series, uses his wife uh, in the series. Jamie Lissau is his uh, best friend and terrible uh, assistant in the series. And he's got another movie ready to go, but he stopped by our studios. I think he'll be a regular here on this show, too. Uh, so um, he's in Arizona. Check out his dates. But watch him Saturday night. It's going to be a great interview, I hope. I, okay, I'll predict it. The answer is yes. We come back. An 84-year study reveals the secret to happiness. No joke. It's there. It's waiting. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. We are back, finally, the key to happiness. Man, this is no small study. Uh, one of the most comprehensive studies, if not the one of the comprehensive, the, the most comprehensive study you will ever hear about. It lasted 84 years and still exists. It began in 1938. There's 724 people. 60 are, are still alive. Think about how old they are. Uh, they're studying 2,000 of their descendants, their kids. Uh, and we're talking about two groups of people uh, I guess one poor, one middle class, upper class, and then we it's game on. Study their lives, keep in touch with them along the way, and see what we can glean to make all of our lives, living today and after us, better. Finding the key to happiness. The name of the book is called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study. And we're privileged to have with us right now uh, the fourth director of that study, Dr. Robert Waldinger, author, uh, and as I mentioned, director. Uh, doctor, fascinated by your TED Talk. I love the book uh, and the insight. It's just uh, great to talk to you. Well, I'm so excited to be here. So, and, and I know we'll talk to you over the weekend at uh, at eight o'clock on, on One Nation. But first off, this pre- this study preceded you. What prompted it? And give can you ever tell everyone how it started? Well, it started uh, with two groups of people, one, a group of Harvard College undergrads, very privileged, and one, a very underprivileged group of kids from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. But both studies were studies of what makes people thrive as they go through their lives. And we've been studying the same families for 84 years. So what were the two groups? How were the two groups put together? What was the criteria? Well, the first group, the Harvard College undergrads, were 19 years old, and their deans thought they were fine, upstanding young men. And the inner city group in 1938 Boston was put together by a Harvard Law School professor who was interested in how some children who were raised in really disadvantaged homes managed to stay on good paths and not get into trouble and build good lives for themselves. <laughs> 
So what you did is you every five years you asked for their health records. Every 15, you met face-to-face, taking notes along the way. You would also tape some of these conversations. Every two years, you would interact with the subjects. And you also invited their wives to join along the way. Is there anything else, so before we get into what you found out, that we should know about how you tracked everybody? Yes. So we invited their wives and then all their children, more than half of whom are women. So even though we started out as a study of all young men, we became a very gender balanced study of men and women. So and how would you keep in touch with them and what were you measuring? Well, so we sent them questionnaires every two years. And then, as you said, we got their medical records. We, you know, checked in with their doctors. We uh, called them on the phone periodically. We went to their homes and interviewed them. And and we started using methods that weren't even dreamed of when the study started in 1938. So we started drawing blood for their DNA. And, you know, DNA wasn't even imagined in 1938. Um, we put them into MRI scanners and scanned their brains to see what lights up when we show them happy pictures and sad pictures. We did so many different things to try to get different windows on this thing we're after, mm-hmm. which is what makes people thrive. Even though it's well-financed and it's from Harvard, it was, it's very rare for any study to last this long. And maybe the longest study ever of things that matter most to everybody listening, people's lives and happiness. So That's right. And yeah. just like, then you said, let life happen. And then yeah. what, is some, what is some commonality? What are some of the things that you began to glean from this study? Well, we certainly began to glean that taking care of your health matters a lot, and that wasn't a surprise. But the surprise was that the people who were more connected to other people and had better relationships with other people stayed healthier, they were happier, but also their bodies stayed healthier and their brains stayed healthier as they got older. Where does we money? We're so surprised. We're, yeah. we're, we're, that's unbelievable. That just connecting with those friends and staying connected with your neighbors and your family could be the key to a long, happy life. The other thing to keep in mind: what what helped you determine that? Because I'm sure some people got rich, some people didn't. Some people had happy marriages, unhappy marriages. Some got divorced. Some had tragedy. So, what made you come to that conclusion? Well, we saw. You know, that the people who got rich weren't happier than the people who were not rich, that it was important to have your basic needs met for your happiness. But beyond that, wealth didn't matter. Fame didn't matter. We had some very famous people in the study like John F. Kennedy didn't matter for happiness and high achievement didn't matter. Uh, It wasn't like you had to win all these awards to be happy. It was really mostly about your connections with other people in your life, family, friends, community. And you have to make the effort. And you also conclude that it's never too late. So maybe you're a senior, didn't have many friends. You go into that senior community, you become the mayor that and then you'll see your life improve. Exactly. We, you know, we followed all these lives. And in the book, we have life stories, real life stories of people. And what we found is that many of them who thought they were never going to have good connections with other people, they found their friend group in their 60s. They found love in their 70s or 80s when they least expected it. So, you know, we say it's never too late because these stories tell us it isn't too late for anybody. So... 
when it comes to marriage. That's a relationship. You conclude, I don't want to put words in your study uh, or conclusions, but you conclude better to get a divorce from a bad relationship uh, than stay in it. We do, because there is some research that says really acrimonious marriages are bad for our health. But what we do argue from our science is that trying to work out those differences in a marriage can have huge payoffs uh, because uh, many marriages can be saved. And working out our differences in relationships actually makes relationships stronger. Uh, When it comes to uh, loneliness, you say that there's one of every five people, Americans, report that they are lonely. That's the recipe. Not only obviously being lonely by definition is not an aspiration for almost anyone we know. How do you explain that? Well, what we think happens is that loneliness is a stressor. So we all have stress every day, right? And our bodies rev up when we're stressed. And that's not a problem. But when the stress is removed, we want our bodies to come back to equilibrium. And what we think happens is that if we have good people in our lives that we can talk to about our problems, our bodies calm down. But if we're lonely or disconnected, our bodies stay in a kind of fight or flight mode with chronic inflammation that breaks down body systems. Uh, you mentioned don't wait to make personal connections. Don't wait to establish yourselves. Keep in touch with people. Uh, and also keep in mind, uh, too, that um, uh, eventually uh, you will have stress in your life. Things will go bad, and that's when you need to have a network around you. Exactly. You know, and one of the things we find is that these efforts – to take care of your relationships don't have to be big efforts. Like people could, listening to us right now, they could think, who do I miss? Who do I want to connect with? And just send them a text or an email and say, I was just thinking about you and wanted to say hi. And you would be amazed at what comes back to you when you reach out in those small ways. Yeah, you say the people who have the best uh, relationships at 50 are the healthiest at 80 uh, the other thing is you also say this is you did this to help people, not just to reveal to people. So you say, map, there's a way to do this. Begin to take action. And you talk about mapping your social universe, advice for communicating uh, during challenging times. How do you map your social universe? Well, we actually have little maps you can use in the book. But the way you do it is to think about, okay, who's in my life? Who's important? What do I have in these relationships? Who do I have fun with? Who do I confide in? Who's a work friend? And just see, okay, what do I have? What would I like some more of? And then how could I work on that part of my social universe? Interesting. You just talk about this. It's counterintuitive that life challenges are as important as, as life's joys. In what respect? Absolutely. Because... Meeting challenges is part of what makes us stronger if we have the resources to meet those challenges, if we're not overwhelmed. And it makes us stronger. It makes us more engaged with the world. And every life has challenges. So the hope is that we build connections with people that help us meet big challenges. You know, think about the pandemic. None of us could have seen that coming. And many of our people are saying that the way they're getting through this pandemic is through their connections with other people. That's interesting because millennials, uh, this next generation, a lot of them don't go to work 
or they're told to stay home, do remote from school for about a year and a half, then maybe they're back and maybe they have an option to stay home. In a way, looking at your 84-year study that's still ongoing, that is not something they should subscribe to because you're not going to build a relationship with anyone. You're not going to meet anyone. And that gets people insular, which is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, find ways to be with people. I mean, just reach out and go take a walk. Uh, do do anything, small things, have a cup of coffee, have a beer, whatever, to, to just connect with people. Um, if you are working at home, find ways to connect with people in your neighborhood and in your social network. Uh, but don't get more isolated. That's the message that our scientific study provides loud and clear. Social media, not all bad. In what way? No. What we find is that people who use social media to reach out and actively connect with other people, those people get happier. So, like, I have a friend who started connecting with his buddies from elementary school, and now they have a coffee on Zoom every week, and they love it. But if we doom scroll through somebody else's Instagram feed, it makes us feel like we're missing out. It makes us compare ourselves negatively to other people's curated lives, you know, their beautiful photos of beaches and parties. That's, that passive use of social media makes us feel worse. But so, actively connecting with others makes us feel better. So you have people out there who you study that have aspirations to be, let's say, a big actor, a singer. They want to own their own business. And when they don't get there, do they, does that necessarily lead to a life of feeling inadequate? Did you find you, – I'm sure you found people in your study, when you look at the numbers, over 1,000, starting with 724, uh, thousands as their kids and wives become part of your study. I'm sure you have people that don't reach their goals. How does that relate to their happiness? Well, nobody reaches all of their goals, and that's really important to put out there, right? You know, none of us get, get everything we want in life, and the people who do the best are the people who make lemonades out of lemons, you know, who find ways to pivot and say, okay, if I'm not going to make it as an actor, I'm going to do this with my talent, right? Those are the people who thrive as they go through life. You know, it's interesting, too. You start off uh, one of your talks by saying millennials were asked what you want, and the, and it was money and fame. Is that unlike previous generations? Since you do study generations of Americans, you probably can drill down and figure out how things might have changed. You know, there's more of an emphasis on fame and money now than there used to be. We started with the World War II generation. Now, those were the folks we were studying, and many of them wanted more to take care of their families and were more community-oriented. Now there's this culture of rugged individualism and, you know, and, and, and making myself powerful or, you know, rich. And, and I think that what we want to get back to is that culture of community and taking care of each other because that's what keeps us happy and healthy. Bring back the block parties uh, and yeah. make, make, make the neighbors <laughs> talk to each other again. Uh, that's yeah, interesting. Exactly. Uh, but the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that you know, people do want their privacy. That is certainly it. The other thing people are listening to us right now, they say one of the things that gets me happy is my religion. I know what's going to happen after this life. What role yeah. does religion play in happiness? You know, we had a group of people who were religious and a group of people who were not. And one group wasn't happier than the other group. But the people who did turn to religion found it a great comfort during difficult times. 
So we know that religion and spiritual practice can work in that very good way to keep us happier and healthier when we're stressed. So you started this uh, whole study with some rich kids, uh, men, boys, and and yeah. the kids that had the in tenements in really tough upbringings. Did you drill down and see what happened to the Ivy Leaguers as compared to the working class? Yes. And we found Ivy Leaguers whose lives went downhill and had miserable, unhappy lives. We had really poor, disadvantaged people who made wonderful lives for themselves, rich lives of family, friends. Some of them even got rich, uh, but that wasn't what made them happy. Uh, but, But there's no particular formula. It's true that being born into privilege makes a difference. Absolutely. And in fact, our Harvard group lived on average 10 years longer than our inner city group, probably because the Harvard group had more education and they knew sooner the importance of taking care of your health um, in the way that the inner city group didn't. But um, but wealth didn't make you happier, and being from a disadvantaged family didn't mean your life was going to be less happy. If you're looking for fulfillment, want to know the keys to happiness, which everybody listening wants to know, take it from an, the conclusions of an 84-year uh, ongoing study about happiness. It's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Robert, uh, Dr. Robert Waldinger, thanks so much. This was a pleasure. All right, go get him, Robert. Uh, back with your calls in just a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back. Uh, Let's try to go to the phones and find out what you're thinking. Uh, Let's go to... Uh, let's go to South Bend. Joel, you're there in South Bend, Indiana. What's on your mind, Joel? I'm no longer in this position, but I, I tell you what, I get very tired hearing people say money can't buy happiness. But I'll tell you with absolute certainty, because I was there, that lack of money is miserable. I mean, there is no happiness in that. And I never hear that spoken of. You know, you, but the struggle to get money do, is something that unifies people. So, for example, you're working 40 hours, you have another day, and everyone's putting in. That is, that's a, I think what he's trying to say, too, is no doubt about it. Struggling is not good, but being a billionaire does not necessarily mean great. So I think there's somewhere in between. Joel, I think the other point that brings up that no one agrees with me is I think a little bit of stress in everyone's life is good. That it matters. I got to get here in time. I'm expected to go to this wedding. I got to show up in time. I got to be able to pick up my kids in time. You know, the little things I got to show up here. I got to get it toxic. All these things in life, you need a little of that, a little reason to get up in the morning. Like some people counting on you, a boss that's a little bit demanding, but not over the top. You agree with that? I do. You know, your your big deal is is who's better, you or Gutfeld. I know that. You know I am. Joel, do you think that's even close? Don't you know that I'm better? He, the only person who doesn't know that is him. Come on, that's I, not even you know, close. Bray, I would love to play golf with you two. I can't imagine you two together. It's uh, it, it's it's too funny. Um, I appreciate you, but right. people need to know that money can't buy happiness, but lack of money can be. Oh, it, it is awful. I've been it's, there. It's a great discussion. Uh, Joel, thanks so much. But if you want to see me happy, it will not be with a golf club in my hand. I play because I have to. And most people say you don't have to play the whole 18, Brian. It's okay. You could go home now. 
atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. So glad you've been with us all week. Man, what a week it's been with the amount of stories, big stories happening not only during the day, but during our show. Thanks so much for tuning in each and every day, which you are. Uh, this hour, we're going to be joined by Shannon Bream. She told me to buy some time. She's just getting out of the shower. Uh, Admiral James Stervitas, he's ready to go at the bottom of the hour, the former uh, NATO Supreme Allied Commander. Besides that, he's not really qualified. Uh, also, will be taking your calls. We have a lot to discuss. The President of the United States is going to meet with the Japanese Prime Minister, who decided, by the way, to build up their military. Man, we need him. And then he's going to go, let me see, it's real strange. He's going to go to Delaware for the weekend for the 61st time. You work your whole life to get to the White House, and you never want to be there. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I had a conversation with the governor of Texas about him, but mm-hmm. with Greg Abbott, where mm-hmm. he was explaining to me what George Soros does. And it's terrifying. It seems like he funds corrosion. It's like he wants these cities to fall apart. He, he wants crime to flourish. Joe Rogan speaks, and maybe now people will pay attention. His focus, George Soros, and what he's done with these extremely pro-criminal DAs is destroying each and every city. We'll discuss it. Number two. Well, I think we know a lot about uh, how a lot of these Russiagate stories came to be. People just lied. Uh, in this case, even when Twitter had more or less conclusive proof that there were no Russians involved. It's unbelievable what Matt Taibbi was able to, to discover and what Elon Musk has allowed us to see. Twitter files 14. Yep, the drop focuses on Russian disinformation. Now you can't blame Twitter. Look at the communication. They were explaining to the Democratic lawmakers no Russian bot campaigns here, and they went ahead and lied anyway. Number one. Classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? That's what you get when you let the president ad lib. His top secret documents are with his not-so-secret old car. That's Joe Biden. He has now got a special counselor breathing down his neck, appointed by Attorney General, who he's got to meet with on a regular basis. Shannon Bream, uh, welcome. Uh, you just have to tell our audience, not a, uh, Donald Trump has got uh, fined uh, $1.6 million for his way of doing business in New York. They said that's the end of this chapter. Of CFO's in jail in Rikers Island, 76 years old. This is, in my view, pure politics played out uh, because he's a Republican and the attorney general is a Democrat. And so is the uh, and so is the D.A. Uh, your response to this, they said it's the last chapter. What other chapters are there? Well, I mean, this is against the Trump organization, and he and his team are saying, absolutely not, we're going to appeal this. So for them, they're hoping it's not the last chapter legally. But listen, I think it's fair to say that the attorney general said, and she made comments publicly about, yeah, we're going to go after him, and we're going to make his life you know, pretty difficult. And that's been the case. I mean, there have been all kinds of cases against him personally, people who worked at Trump organization, digging into the businesses of his and his kids. And so, um, you know, 
there are plenty of people who think it is politically motivated. Uh, but as for this particular case, the uh, Trump Organization says an appeal is coming. Yeah, uh, well, that'll be interesting. I'm just wondering if an att- another legal case against him is coming. I imagine, I think there's still something with, uh, uh, I don't know, with... Uh, what is the stripper's name? Well, you've got you've got Georgia, you know, where you've got yeah, the Stormy Daniels. jury down there that has been looking at stuff. So um, you've got that. You've got, I think, that E. Jean Carroll lawsuit may still be alive out there somewhere. So, I, you know, there are all kinds of political things that – or, excuse me, legal things that he's got to worry about. So I was uh, at one thirty in the afternoon not knowing there would be a second tranche in Discovery and a third. Uh, Merrick Garland made it clear we're going with a special counsel. Cut three. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. But under the regulations, the extraordinary circumstances here require the appointment of a special counsel for this matter. This appointment underscores for the public the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters and to making decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. So here we go. Game on. What are your thoughts? I don't know that the attorney general had any other option. Choice, yeah. I don't I don't know what you think because listen, um you've got the special counsel going into the Trump Mar-a-Lago document situation and now they knew, you know, before the midterms in early November that there was a document situation for the current president and more revelations in December and yesterday we find out three different locations. So this is exactly what special counsel is created for so that, you know, you can look like there's no bias. It's being handled by somebody who's completely independent. And I don't think he had a choice. I mean, where else was he going to go with this? So what can you tell us about Robert Hur? He's appointed by Garland to investigate President Biden. We know that he clerked for Rehnquist. People mm-hmm. think that he might be a conservative, is a conservative. How do you think that plays into this? Why do you think he was selected? I think because he does have a very distinguished background, like so many of these, um, you know, folks that the attorney general has to tap for these really, you know, very sticky situations. He's got critics out there who are pointing to the fact that he had, you know, close professional ties with Christopher Wray. They don't trust him when it comes to former President Trump. Um, But listen, most people that I talk to say this guy is above board. He's respected and he will be trusted to be objective in handling this thing. Um, It's a tough assignment for any attorney because you know that immediately the attorney general is making people mad by appointing these special counsels either for Trump or for the Biden investigation. And the people that he picks um, to do the actual investigation. No, the entire country is going to be watching them, making sure that the two sides are treated the same way in these investigations. So he's got a tough job ahead. Is it going to be years? Is it going to be months? Is it going to be weeks? Oh, man. I mean, I would most of these investigations I would put in the months category. But listen, we're already into the 2024 election. So if you're investigating the man who's a former president who said he's definitely running and all the chatter has been here in Washington that Biden was getting ready to announce a reelection run, he's now under investigation. Um, you know, the DOJ tries not to look political and doesn't want to right. look like they're impacting investigations. But I, I mean, elections, but we're already in the next election cycle. The bigger question I have is what made those lawyers go to that closet November 2nd or announce they found something in that locked closet at the University of Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania uh, Biden, y- Center. Yeah, Biden Center? What yeah. made them go that day? Why send lawyers? I saw Kevin well, McCarthy ask that question. Everyone's asking, mm-hmm. what do you think? 
Well, I mean, the story is that they were preparing to move that office. And so they would have people there who would be, you know, a little bit more elevated, not just your average, you know, John and sons getting over there to move stuff. These are potentially sensitive documents, whether they were classified or not. So the, you know, the story was they were moving offices. And so they felt like it was important to have some people over there. Uh, they spotted something at some point that was questionable, and that's when the lawyers got involved. So if it was about a move, that would make logical sense that that's how they turned up. But we don't know that, do we? We don't know. Right. So That's what Robert Hur's got to find out. Right. And did somebody come in, did the pool boy come in and go to move and say, "Uh uh-oh, this looks important, let's call the lawyer? I don't hear that scenario. That would have been a scenario that I think the president would have embraced, but so far he reads a statement over and over again, and I just don't know why, you know. Why is it that his lawyers got to search, and you could tell me if I'm wrong here, why did his lawyers get to search his garage? Well, I kind of think that once this investigation started back in November, once they realized, like, okay, we've got a U.S. attorney on this, they've got to start digging around, his people probably got nervous. He's been out there, you know, saying how irresponsible and how could this happen with former President Trump. And once they knew there was a discovery of documents at the Penn Biden Center, I think they knew, okay, we got to start combing through everything because this is a potential bit of liability that's now opened up. And if we find something, it's better that we find it and give it to them than they find it. So November 4th, they, they call the archive. November 9th, the FBI begins an assessment. November 14th, Garland says, I know that, but I'm still going to name, I'm still in November 18th, I'm still going to name a special counsel for Trump. November 14th, Garland assigns John Lausch to perform initial investigation. And December 20th, Biden's team says, yeah, we found more stuff. I imagine the minute you name John Lausch, he should be leading the charge to all these places. I mean, clearly Mm -hmm. they were negotiating with Trump. I get it. But when it was time to get the documents... They took them. They took everything. They ransacked the place. They laid these pictures on the floor and took and took them in order to emphasize the FBI to emphasize why they were there, I guess. But why didn't they put out the 10 pages of classified documents and blow out the contents in front of that to make it equal? I see a big difference. And Jim Trusty, who now has worked with the Trump team, said mm-hmm. this last night, cut eight. And I could probably add about 50 or 75 other questions about how DOJ has treated this situation and how radically different it is from their attempt to criminalize President Trump's situation, which was simply not a crime under the Presidential Records Act and the Constitution when it comes to his ability to declassify. So the differential treatment is etched in stone so far in this case. I don't know how special counsel can undo two months of silence, two months of investigative steps likely squandered, and and a complete difference in the use of resources by the big machine of DOJ uh, for President Biden compared to President Trump. So uh, does he wrong in any of those assessments? No, and I think that's that's going to be the best argument for the Trump folks is that, okay, there was a lot of white-hot light on us when this thing came out. There are a lot of accusations, a lot of leaks. And so how will this proceed? How will the DOJ handle this for the sitting president, who is a Democrat, unlike the former president, who's a Republican? So there's a ton of pressure on Garland and the DOJ to get this right. But I think, you know, the Trump team is going to say, look at the different treatment. There are differences in these cases. You know, the the Biden folks will say, we discovered it, we turned it over, we didn't fight for months with them about turning things over, we're cooperating. Um, and, you know, there, that's a legitimate distinction that you got to make. But I think there's, there's more to both of these cases that we're going to find out. I, I guess so. So we'll see where this goes. But do you think they could prosecute one and not the other in, rea- in reality? I 
think that's going to be really difficult. First of all, you know, if you're talking about indicting, um, you know, you can't charge a sitting president with crimes. And we've never in this country indicted a former president. So I think it makes it really difficult. I think DOJ has got to say, look, here's how we proceeded. You know, check our work. These are two different special counsels. This is what we came to. But I think it would be incredibly difficult for the DOJ to say we're going to charge one of these guys and not the other. So we also had this week an FAA meltdown. And if you just look at the report card, uh, Shannon, we want to get to the bottom of it. Since the Secretary of Transportation, a guy that or a woman, I never really know their name, Norm Panetta, Panetta for a mm-hmm. while, I guess. Mm-hmm. I never know their name. But with Pete Buttigieg, I know his name because the failure at our ports and our supply chain, how many ships couldn't get into port, how he was on paternity leave, which is entitled but didn't tell anybody that we know. Somebody's to blame there, lack of communication. The Southwest debacle when he said the airlines were ready for the holidays. Clearly, they weren't. And then we have on top of that what just happened with the grounding of the FAA, uh, the FAA on something that was picked Mm -hmm. off to him in the middle of the night. A backup system was not ready. And so far, there's no plan for seven years to even upgrade a system that hasn't been updated since the 90s. So what is your take on people that want to be critical of Pete judge about his, the back of his baseball card? I think that he's going to have an opportunity to answer these questions in front of Congress. Um, The House Republicans were already geared up to do a lot of investigations, but this is something they may actually get bipartisan support on because people are freaking furious. I mean, after the holiday stuff, after what happened this week, there were questions about, okay, if this was a software upgrade situation or computer upgrade, technology upgrade, but it's not scheduled to kick in for like six years, these lawmakers are going to say, okay, what about the billions of dollars that we give you every year? We can't have that this situation play out that happened this Wednesday. So there are few points of bipartisanship, but I think that this is going to be one of them because Democrats and Republicans are like are hearing from their constituents about what a cluster the air system in this country often turns out to be. Right. I mean this is an, I always look at this as an opportunity. When someone says I'm going to put you in the border, it's tough. Well if you if you factually fix the border you could be a superstar. And if you are in transportation and, and obviously the airlines, you got to stand up the airlines again. And you tackle this head on and you impress all those airline CEOs and the airports and you start interacting with other lawmakers, you, the buzz goes out about you. This guy or this woman knows what you're doing. They care. And I think that buzz has not happened. When you look at Governor DeSantis, nobody knew who he was. But his performance is people talking about him. Um you yeah. follow me? And, and listen, yeah, and if Pete Buttigieg is going to be in the hunt for 2024, yeah. I mean, listen, look how well he did in the early primaries and things last year. He had a, or two years ago, he had a ton of buzz about him. If he could solve this problem, it would be hard not to like him, at least as an American. If I knew that I was going to fly and everything was going to be, you know, relatively on time and there wasn't going to be a complete meltdown of the system, you would gain a lot of fans. But he's a little bit in a hole right now. He's got a place to dig out of, and I don't think that House members who are fond of investigating in the coming days are going to give him a, uh, an easy pass. And he's got some man's questions to answer about his private flights and to go to do an interview in New York. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a good answer. He's flying out to Portugal on vacation. Maybe there's a good answer why he needs private. At the same time, he's telling us uh, to stop using our gas ovens and to hop on a bike. Uh, it doesn't Listen, seem I'm just glad that you have a private jet and you la- occasionally let me catch a ride. Right. Uh, it's electric. I have to plug it in. I'm and a lot you of plug t- it in, but right. it's a long extension cord once you get up in the sky. Right. I don't travel. It's really not that long because that's where I never really get it up in the air. And I'm still oh. interviewing pilots. So I just got to pick the right it, one. Do you drive it, though? Do you drive the plane? Like, are there roads you can drive it on? Uh, yes. And I, I fly, I'm able to charge on the Tesla <laughs> uh, outlets. So nice. it works out good. 
and it so, all go along. Shannon, would you use this last minute to tell me who's on your show? I would. Listen, because of all these coming investigations on the Hill, we have got Democrat John Garamendi, Republican Tony Gonzalez to talk about, um, you know, how these clash, how these clashes play out. And plus, Tony Gonzalez just met with Secretary Marikas, which a lot of Republicans in the House have said they're going to impeach him. I wonder if they talked about that during their meeting. Also, we've got the uh, youngest governor in the country, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She came out bold. You know, with these executive orders she's rolled out, her critics don't love them, as you would expect. But also, is she going to support her former president or former uh, boss and president as he makes another run for the White House. It's a, you know, uh, Biden or Trump era officials are going to have to kind of decide what, whether they're in or they're out. All right. Shannon Bream. She's dominating Sundays. Fox News Sunday. Move over football. She's got a show. Thanks, Shannon. First, football next. Bye. You got it. Uh, we come back. Your calls. one 866 Then we welcome an Admiral, Admiral James Javridis. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade show. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. All right. I want you to hear Jim, Jim Comer is going to get involved with all this. He was on Laura Ingram last night. He's got huge questions. Like we all have questions about how this raid went. Why there wasn't a raid with President Biden. Listen to Comer. Cut 18. We wonder why the FBI didn't raid Joe Biden, we wonder why we're just now learning about this when the first uh, set of documents were discovered November the 2nd. I mean, we wouldn't even know about this if it weren't for the fact that there had been investigative reporting breaking this. There wouldn't. And a lot of people, and I think Donald Trump's got to play this good. What he does is, if your guy's getting killed, do not steal the headlines from him. So many times, Trump in the past, we either have something good go with go for him and then overwhelm it or something else bad would be happening and he would do something controversial and take the heat off him. So what Trump's got to do is I would let this play out. I would not be talking. I would not be. I know he was on with Mark Levin yesterday uh, and uh, I would not be talking much about it. Putting something on Truth Social is big. What he does have now is retweeted on Truth Social about the whole Matt Taibbi thing and how Adam Schiff abuses power uh, to demand uh, to demand certain things of social media, like kicking off Paul Sperry. Remember that? So he's got a lot going for him with the facts, and I think he needs a media strategist for the first time to allow him to maximize that. He's got opportunity here. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's really a matter of uh, being a, a sense of urgency about getting equipment to the Ukrainians, getting the training done. Uh, the report that the Poles are now considering uh, leopard tanks, that's a great uh, development. Uh, the fact that we uh, have authorized Bradley uh, fighting vehicles, that's a great... Uh, but we really now... Uh, it can't be at all business as usual. It has to be very aggressive to get the materials there. Because when the winter lifts, uh, I think you're going to see even renewed possibilities of offensives. I think she's right, and we know they might have lost this uh, city that's about 5.5 miles long. We're not sure, but the Russians are moving forward. But it's basically the Wagner Group, not their regular army. Admiral uh, James Stravitis is with us, 16th Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, member of the Carlisle Group, and author of To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of Decision. 
Admiral, I'm sure you don't want to push back against anything Condoleezza Rice said. Um, Condi Rice, great friend, uh, former Secretary of State, former National Security Advisor, <laughs> Republican, um, somebody I have a lot of respect for, and she's got it exactly right. She's also quoting from a piece that she and my former boss, Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, wrote together uh, just a few days ago that lays out the case for now is the time and uh, particularly draws a line under the need for these kind of um, armor main battle tank additions to the Ukrainian fight. So, yeah, I think Condi has it exactly right. But we have to change the way we're doing it. We've been doing this for the same after eight months. Yeah. I think we, we still have not decided on fighter jets. We have still said we're not going to give them the M1A1, the, uh, the, um, the Abrams tanks. Uh, they say they're better off getting the Leopard tanks. You, you know this stuff like the back of your hand. I'm just telling you what... So they're better off the tanks because they wouldn't have very little, uh, very little uh, ramping up time. But why are we still slow walking this? We have to change the way we're doing things. I agree with you 100 percent. Can you and, talk to uh, anyone, you, Admiral? You, Can you talk to you anyone over I, there? I do. And you and I have been having this conversation, but I'm also talking to the administration frequently on this. And, and again, if I have a significant criticism for the administration here. It's that they've been too incremental. They have tried to move this thing. You used the phrase slow walking. Um, They're trying to do it very incrementally. The theory of the case, which made some sense, you know, nine months ago, maybe even six months ago, was let's avoid having this escalate into a war between NATO and Russia. Brian, I think we're past that point. Russian behavior is clearly all in, and we need to be all in um, with pretty much everything in the inventory to include fighter jets, either Polish MiG-29s, US F-16s, main battle tanks, that is the uh, M181 Abrams, the queen of the battlefield. Um, We need to push all of that forward. The Ukrainians know what to do with it. We got to stop Russia. Where's it heading? Are you getting, you hearing about reports about a Russian offensive that could be in the queue? Yeah, there, there certainly that's the Russian theory of the case. Now, here you can you can postulate offensives uh, till the cows come home, but um, you got to have trained, motivated, capable troops to conduct such operations. Um, when Putin announced his last mobilization, 300,000 young Russian males headed for the exits. They crossed the borders and left. What he has swept up from the uh, the prisons and the homeless, and it, these are not going to be frontline troops. It, it would take you a year to put them in any kind of fighting shape. So back to the Wagner group, I think what will happen here is the conscript forces will be used as, if you will, shock troops, uh, cannon fodder, another term for it, to go forward. Wagner troops come behind it. Um, could it turn into a big offensive? Maybe I wouldn't have a lot of confidence that Russia is going to be able to pull that together, particularly finishing here, particularly if we get the armor to the Ukrainians. They don't have they the Russians don't have much chance of overcoming that. Right. So what you got to do is wear them out. But they say time is not on the Ukrainian side. Why? Because uh, there's a political atmosphere here. I notice in this country, these lawmakers, uh, people are getting tired of writing checks. uh, And we know we're thirty three trillion dollars in debt. And they, they want to see something change. And even though militarily it's going to be one of the great success stories ever, 
they want to see it now, and it doesn't look like Russia cares about if they are bleeding financially at all, which they seem to be doing as they lost $42 billion out of their economy. You've got it right, Brian. Um, Just to put it in perspective, I would say, and I spent a fair amount of time looking at the statements of various lawmakers, talking to a lot of them, talking to a lot of the staffs. I think there's a a 10% uh, kind of falling away effect. And and frankly, it's on the right and it's on the left. And there are many on the left who say we should be using these funds in other ways here in the United States. And look, that's a good debate to have. It's a healthy debate to have. But the bottom line is if we don't stop Russia now, we're going to end up paying a lot more later. It's the same setup that we looked at in World War One and World War Two, here we've got a chance to get ahead of the curve. The administration's got to pick up the pace and get behind the Ukrainians even more. I think ultimately the Congress will support that. Can you go inside the inner workings? For example, if Secretary of Defense Austin says, I, I'm going to give those M1A1 tanks, I've decided to go with the uh, F-15s and give them to them. That's not the way it works, is it? Where does, where does the go sign come from? It comes from the White House. It comes from the executive branch. And um, I am pretty confident that the Pentagon is putting together options for using the F-16, which is a, uh, a, a aircraft that you can train in fairly quickly. I think they're showing options for MiG-29s, then backfilling the poles with F-16s. I think they are showing options for even heavier armor than the Bradleys, which are pretty good in, in the environment they're going to be fighting in in Ukraine, but those M1A ones can just make mincemeat out of the Russians. So I I know those options are going up. They get vetted by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. There's uh, meetings then are held. I've been in these meetings many times in the Situation Room. You get other cabinet officials around the table, but at the end of the day, it's the president's decision. And, And he's been pushed along, again, back to incrementalism, I'm hoping that those pushes will continue and the president will do the right thing here. Talking to Admiral James Stravitas. Admiral, uh, the other thing that's uh, taking place is uh, the Washington Times wrote this story about the war games that played out should China invade Taiwan. And we win. We take tremendous casualties. And Japan plays a major role. Japan's yeah. prime minister is here today. There's talk about them building up their military. I personally would love it. I would take the burden of us and men. We know when the Japanese want, they can fight. So what, how do you see this? Do you see that war game? Uh, were you encouraged by what happened, discouraged by how it played out? I'm very familiar with the war game, and I've done dozens of such war games over the years. And as a general proposition, we do end up winning. We take very heavy casualties, and Japanese bases and Japanese combat capability are crucial. Um, the good news here, Brian, is that for decades, really since the end of the Second World War, the Japanese have self-imposed a cap on their defense spending of 1% of GDP. Here in the United States, we spend 3.5%, maybe a little more, on our defense. Here's the punchline. Uh, The prime minister will be very much in favor and is already moving toward uh, increasing the Japanese defense spending from 1% to 2%. In practical terms, Brian, that'll take them from 
55 billion to 110 billion in defense spending. It'll make Japan the third largest defense budget in the world after the U.S. and China. That is nothing but good news in my view as well. All right, uh, and we have we begun to get the weapons they need in Taiwan to allow them to defend themselves. We are just beginning to crack that open, and hopefully, we'll take the lessons of Ukraine that far better to get the weapon systems, the training, the engagement into the hands of those patriots in Ukraine and and perhaps in Taiwan who have to do the fighting early on. And it's not because Ukraine is going to invade Russia or Taiwan is going to attack China. That's absurd. These are defensive systems, but they create deterrence in the eyes of the Chinese or in the eyes of the Russians. We missed that window with Ukraine. We can still salvage that in Taiwan with the right kind of weapons, getting them in the hands of the Taiwanese. How would you assess the economy uh, as it relates to the military with the Chinese? By almost all indications, they are not coming out of this pandemic stronger, and it's lasting longer than anybody thought for them. It is. And the reason is um, that they pursued this, uh, frankly, idiotic policy of zero covid much more draconian than anything we did here in the United States. They would shut down entire buildings, entire cities would be cut off um, in, in an attempt to, to just crush the virus in its tracks. And, and it worked for a while, but then the virus adapted and got better and better. And so now they have a largely unvaccinated population. And that uh, pandemic is now sweeping through their population killing many, many Chinese, particularly older Chinese. So all of that is a distraction. And yeah, it weakens the Chinese economy. But we ought to bear in mind, Brian, that sometimes when autocratic leaders have internal dissent and internal difficulties, what do they do? They can lash out internationally in order to create a sense in their population that there's great risk out there. We need to pull together Watch for that in China if they can't get ahead of this pandemic, which I think is going to be a challenge for them. Admiral, thanks so much. Look forward to talking to you soon, talking to you again soon. You bet, Brian. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You got it. Uh, And, of course, the Admiral Phil's Go Jaguars. They play the Chargers this weekend, and he's out there in Jacksonville. All right, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't forget, One Nation, Saturday night at 8 o'clock. We'll be back with more when we return. And with you. Don't move. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I had a conversation with the governor of Texas about him, but with Greg Abbott, where he was explaining to me what George Soros does. And it's terrifying. That he donates money to a very progressive, very leftist, uh, whether it's a DA or whatever politician, and then funds someone who's even further left than them to go against them. It seems like he funds corrosion. It's like he wants these cities to fall apart. He, he wants crime to flourish. It's, yeah. it's almost like he's an evil person in a Batman movie. Uh, that is Joe Rogan talking to Mike Baker, a good friend of the show, who's filled in for me before. Uh, saying that he's come to this conclusion about George Soros, who put all those DAs in position. 
and it's just evil. And it's just it. There's no flip side to it. He's not pro-criminal. He's insulated himself, and he's trying to upend American society. I understand he can't even go to France or, or England. He'll be arrested. So uh, Joe Rogan picked it up, and I'm sure it's going to get traction. And as, uh, as we've talked about today on Fox & Friends, Joe Rogan's late to the party. We've been talking about this for years, but it finally is finally resonating with somebody who's really a blowtorch in terms of sending America's uh, dialogue, uh, and he's going to make people respond to that. He also talked about the pandemic and what we all learned about local politicians and the power they tried to have. Cut 27. Well, I don't think people realize the implications that it had on their actual lives, what politicians, Mm -hmm. what rules they could and couldn't enact until the pandemic, until they shut down businesses, shut down restaurants, mandated certain things, mandated vaccines for children in schools. When you saw politicians doing things like that, that's when people started freaking out. Like, Jesus, I didn't know you guys had that kind of power. Yeah. And I think that's why people had a new appreciation for school boards through the pandemic and new appreciation for mayors and governors, because you saw the way New York destroyed their place and uh, California still hasn't recovered. And you see where Florida flourished in Texas, same way. And people are quickly to go on, jump all over Georgia and say what a bad job the governor's doing. It turns out he's doing a great job. Open it up quick. So quick. Even Trump was saying, hey, guys, slow down. But he didn't. It makes me wonder, the more I think about it, if there's indeed more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Unplugged. Reclaim your privacy from big tech snooping with Unplugged. Visit Unplugged.com. Well, this TikTok star is certainly uh, tearing things up. Remember, these NILs, name, image, and likeness, allow uh, uh, college athletes to make money off uh, social media or anything else they want to sponsor them. So this LSU gymnast has now got an extra security because all hell broke loose when she traveled. Uh, remember, she was had an extra layer because uh, she had to basically run for her life because so many people want to get a hold of her. Uh, when she uh, during the team season opener, LSU season opener, she showed up at the University of Utah. Unruly fans carrying signs and cutouts of Dunn chanted for her throughout the meet, despite the fact that uh, her not being in the lineup. The antics interrupted other athletes. Afterwards, the video circulated of a large group of males lined up outside chanting, we want to meet her. Uh, on Sunday, Dunn tweeted that she uh, appreciated the support but asked fans to be more respectful. Quote, I'll be more appreciative and love uh, of the love and support from you guys if you can if you come to a meet. I want you to ask to please res- be respectful of other gymnasts and other gymnastic community. Dunn is one of the most followed collegiate athletes in social media. Uh, meanwhile, Dunn has an NIL value of $2.3 million. She reportedly earned $2 million with various sponsorships, including activewear brand Viore. I think that's how you say it, American Eagle and Planet Fuel. She's also signed with the biggest agencies, WME. First example, right? Bigger than the game. She is. I think that's one of like, this is one of the better NIL stories or what to highlight. And that's, it's a gymnast, right? When before did you really hear about gymnast and that she's making so much money off of this? It is embarrassing not to be a starter and have everybody uh, being overwhelmed and disrupted. And you're sitting there on the bench next. Bernie Madoff's former New York City penthouse is for sale. And guess what? Nobody wants it. Evidently, the 3.5 bathroom property first hit the market at $18 million. Uh, the real estate investor Lawrence Berenson purchased the home in 2014 for $14 million, plus the adjacent residence for $4 million, with a cost of $18.5 million. But they just pulled it off because nobody wants to buy it. It's bad karma, don't you think? Possibly. I mean, it's been on the market for seven months without an offer. And this is also the third time uh, since his arrest that it's gone up for sale. <laughs> Next, Yellowstone Show has now people dressing like they're part of the cast, dressing like cattle ranchers. 
First example, Ryan Kalebo's life is, with, uh, is nothing like that of a rough-and-tumble cowboy. The 34-year-old spends his days toiling over foster care cases, not tending to cattle, but he lives in Dobbs Ferry where people ride commuter trains. Yet on any given day, he dresses like a hardened rancher uh, in cowboy boots and snap-button uh, uh, snap shirts. Quote, I definitely adopted a very Western style. Uh, it turns out that Yellowstone is spreading their way of dressing. It centers on the Dutton family. As you know, Kevin Costner plays the lead. I don't think anything's wrong with dressing like you're on the ranch. I don't think so. I think it also probably makes a lot of men look a lot more manly. Right. Is there a problem? I remember who was telling me that it's very hard to get somebody with a masculine persona to play masculine roles, like to sell trucks and to sell camping equipment, because there's so many men are, I don't know, what do they call it, metrosexual David Beckham types? Not rough around the edges. No, no chafing. No chafing. No wrinkles. No I, windburn. But I mean, I would think actors. There are just enough out, enough of them out there. Right? Can't you throw a cowboy hat on the rock or something? True. <laughs> well, Rock's a little different. He's half. Uh, he's got the Hawaiian look to him, and tattoos, and and a very good upper body. Uh, but I think <laughs> Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe is the perfect example. He's a man, yeah. right? He does trucks. He does. He does man stuff. Rugged, all of the above. I agree. Right. And people want manly men. Some do. Not everybody. Not uh, you. Don't want a manly man. In, a, in, a, uh, in our country, I do think we do it. The Marlboro Man look is not as hot as it was. Plus, smoking not good for you. True, True but it's coming back. One Nation Saturday at eight. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.